Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're very, very thankful. Every new day, we're grateful. In your son's name, amen. I was trying to find, as I normally do on a Sunday morning, under the inspiration of Pop-Tarts and the passages, oh, passages that oh, I haven't ever taught on that one, I said to myself this morning of Psalm 27, and no, very recently. But I had been thinking about some aspects of our desire for God. So certain words are springing to mind, like um, the word dwelling in his house, you know, that uh, I was looking at uh, the Chronicles passage at the dedication of the temple. Solomon's talking about how God is just way too big to be dwelling in any house made by hands, but this is all we got. I had been in that passage way too recently. I ended up looking at Psalm 5, and I hadn't been in Psalm 5 for 20 years. I mean, that might make you seem like a bad person. But 20 years, I had I'd preached out of Psalm 5. And as I read through it, you can see why you skip over it, because it's kind of a just very general reminder. It is a to the choir master for the flutes, a Psalm of David. It's so basic. Sometimes we forget how much the things that are basic in our lives are central to you getting on every day. We've been putting up as a nation and a people and maybe personally in your own life various hassles, calamities. And we sometimes forget how I was thinking about the Lord's Prayer where the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. He said, pray then like this, the Our Father. And we know that every once in a while when we read through the Our Father, that we are very inspired by the most basic nature of it. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Oh, yeah, yeah, you, you know what that's about, right? Lunch. After church, you're going to have some lunch, and you better be thankful. It's from the hand of God. The most basic things. I was talking to Black Kenny this week. Is it this week? Sometime, recently. About how our breath is at least a metaphor for the spirit in us. To whatever degree it may be actual, I, I, I can't speak with any authority, but at least a metaphor. It's always the word breath for spirit. And how often just the autonomic nervous system kicking off the next breath, your diaphragm contracts and pulls air into your, uh, your lungs and you stay alive because you breathe the next breath. Thank your God because he breathed into Adam and became a life-giving spirit. Every breath. Was it the police? You, 
every breath you take. It's a who, what? Ah, oh, stalking song. Oh, good. You're welcome, everyone. This is what happens when pop culture enters a sermon. <laughs> it's not pop culture. You know the pastor's like old when he's talking about the police as pop culture. They're all dead, aren't they? Oh, dang it. I had hoped. Um, the most basic things... Sometimes we should be ready to fall to our knees and uh, reverence God. I don't have to wait for a miracle. I don't have to wait for sweet Aunt Betty to be healed of the cancer and be real thankful that the thing happened or something came through for you and you were accepted into you know, grad school at wherever. Thank God for those things too, but opening your eyes tomorrow morning, that's a big one. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Give heed to my groaning. Hearken to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to thee do I pray. O Lord, in the morning thou dost hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for thee. And watch. One of the basic things in a, you might say, the, um, the heart of David. A lot of these are, are prayer-like. He's offering this up. We would say, um, I'd say at the beginning of a prayer in the... Uh, And services, I'll say, uh, dear Lord God. Others people would say, dear Lord. Some people would be more effusive like this, three verses in. And all it's doing is saying, look, it's a prayer. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Now, if that's, this doesn't mean that for me to have a uh, real prayer, I have to be this effusive. You could be, and sometimes it would be good for your soul to be this effusive. Have you ever spoke in real honorifics of anyone you should honor? Tristan read the passage this morning about emperors and governors and bad masters to whom you owe honor. Do you even know how to speak it? But it also, our God is not only, the, you might say, the slavish adoration. I was just, I turned the page when I was sitting this morning in the library this morning, um, thinking about this concept, I flipped a page back in Psalms, and the first line of Psalm 3 is, O Lord, that's his introduction. That's his prayer beginning. O Lord. This one, give ear to my words, O Lord, give heed to my groaning, hearken to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to thee do I pray. He still hasn't gotten around to it. It's that, you know, dear so-and-so, you haven't gotten to your theme of your prayer yet. But that you're announcing that you are praying. And it's not, you'll notice the things I bolded in those first three verses, give ear, give heed, hearken, thou dost hear. You're, you're not doing it, you're not praying and announcing your prayer that you would be seen praying. 
you are announcing a prayer that you would be heard praying. Prayer is a heard thing. We know the temptation, the Christ spoke of it, of praying on street corners, right? to be seen by men. We know that we cannot be really praying to men because they're not the answerers to our prayers, but we sure want them to see us praying so that they will think your relationship with God is what it's supposed to be. Well, you're not to pray to be seen by men. Be sure you're, you're focusing, however you address your God, however you step into his courts, ready to speak to him, you are, you are asking to be heard. That's why we say, O king, live forever. That's why you, when you declaim anything before someone more important than you, there's a formal type of address. Most excellent, Felix. I think it even says that Paul stretched forth his hand and said, We don't know how to do that anymore. But this is basic things. This is a basic, how do, I, how do I drop to my knees? What do I drop to my knees about? I've got so many basic things that should be ready prayers in my um, satchel that of, of, of things I want to take before the Lord. I want God to hear them. How do I get God to hear them? The thing, the person that is seeing is you. It was kind of a weird phrasing right at the end of verse 3. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for thee and watch. Because the role of seeing is in you when you pray. You are looking, waiting, watching the horizon. What's God going to do? I'm asking him to do something. Whatever you're groaning about, whatever the sound of your cry is in reference to, whatever you will say that he will hear, the whole point is that when you, with prayers and supplications, with thanksgiving, make your needs known to God, the peace of God which then descends on you is in part you standing there watching for God's answer. You are, you are dwelling in God's world. This is not just basic Christian living as a subset of living. All living is a subset of Christian living. All being is a subset of our religion because our God made everything. This is his world. It runs the way he designed it. And so it is natural for me, once I have been heard in my prayer, however, whether it's an O oh Lord or it's an effusive, lengthy honorific about my God, I want to be heard, and then I'm going to be looking around his world because there's no part of his world that he's not in charge of or the answer is to, even if the answer is now. You're watching. You're the one that wants to see what God is doing in the world in answer to your prayers. 
The second little set of verses, we have this broken up into like paragraphs of Psalm. He says, I've been praying to you, Lord, and I want you to hear me, and I'm watching for your answer. Then he says, I know some things, very basic things. For thou art not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not sojourn with thee. The boastful may not stand before thy eyes. Thou hatest all evildoers. Thou destroyest those who speak lies. The Lord abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Hmm. That's pretty, uh, that jumps right into the action. My relationship with my God is one of extreme height being broached by my prayers and my eyes watching for his answer. And one of the first things I affirm is essentially, hallowed be thy name. I don't know if you like that. I, I, I grew up a Baptist, Southern Baptist. But we, you know, occasionally the Lord's Prayer would come out, even though we weren't very liturgical. And I always preferred the trespasses instead of the debtors, because that long sibilant S, too many S's, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's a lot of S's in there. And when you have a whole congregation of Baptists saying trespasses, it's just sort of, well, kind of a hiss. But I really like the, you know, hallowed. Not hallowed. If you say hallowed, get out of this church. We don't ever recite the Lord's Prayer here because I think it's dangerous to do so. But when you do pray that way, it's hallowed. It's more poetic. That's not anything to do with the sermon. I just had to say it. Um, The idea of your God being good, that the distinction between the God you are falling on your knees before is actual goodness. This is not, this is not assumed about gods. Most gods are not. Most religions don't have a good deity. They have a deity you side with, that's in favor of this, that, or the other thing, and you do things to get them on your side, but goodness, they're not really, Thor is not really good, Odin's not good, Vishnu is not good, Shiva is certainly not good. All sorts of gods are out there, and some of them may represent righteousness. It was, I think Ahurel Mazda of the Zoroastrians is, is a god of some righteousness. We, we think that, that God, just the word itself, means a good thing. We're actually introducing the God of the Judeo-Christian faith to the world as a God who is morally acute, morally precise, morally a judge. He destroyeth those who speak lies. He hateth evildoers. He doesn't put up with anything that is less than holy. It's that passage in James. I have a reference here, James 1. Where is that? It's in the Bible, right? James 1, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good endowment and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This second paragraph, God's moral position, is one you need to regularly refer to. For he is a good God and loves his people, and is against the wicked. It's one of the most basic petty doubts that people come up with. It's such a schmarmy thing to do. Stephen Fry, who's a famous atheist, also played Jeeves on all the BBC. He, of course, he's got that supercilious tone <clears throat> I saw him on a little short YouTube video <clears throat> questioning God's goodness. It's sort of a neener, neener. The standard theodicy problem, which is not much of a problem. As soon as you picture everyone who brings up God's purported wickedness, you're looking at them like, haven't you been paying attention to all of human history? and who's been doing the bad things. And you are objecting to God, who no man has seen, who has a reputation for being good, but you want to, because you're like a teenage girl who doesn't get to date the boy she wants. My parents hate me. They're just awful. No, there's no problem in theodicy. People are awful. People are awful. The world is rotten because people are awful. You know, I would side with God on this point. People are wicked. The world's awful because they're wicked. And they're going, no, it's because he's not doing anything to stop us from being wicked. If he were all-powerful, he would stop me. Oh, he'll stop you. Don't you worry. He'll kill you dead and judge you and cast you into the lake of fire where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Oh, I don't like that, you say to yourself. You say, I don't want God doing too much about this. I want to blame him for not being good, for not doing anything about it, but don't do anything about it that I don't approve of. You are, this society is like a bunch of teenage girls. I mean, not that teenage guys are smarter, but they're a little less petulant they're, they're kind of almost creatures rather than human beings. Women at that age are bad creatures, bad human beings, but men are just animals. You heard it here first at church. Remember this. This is a basic thing. I, I, I want to pray. I want to address my God. I don't, I'm not trying to be, you know, ask for the key to the church Sometime, I just want to go down and pray at the church, you know, sit in a beam of sunlight and by myself, in the, hoping maybe somebody might come in and notice and catch a photograph of you praying. I'd love it if people came in and prayed in the church. We want to be heard, though. Find a place you will be heard, not seen. Be praying about the thing that is 
in the most silly way, questioned all the time, is God good? That's the whole point of our religion. God is good. He made the cosmos good. We were bad. He's trying to fix you. God is not good like... Um, it's a different kind of God. Say there's a, you live in a nice neighborhood, and down the street there's a charming old man who's, who's really kind, you know, gives lollipops to the kids, and there's a kindness that goes on. Um, that's good. Might be a holy person. But it's not that kind. God's not that kind of holy. God is that terrifying kind of holy. That he doesn't just hold a different opinion of you of behavior. And he holds the better opinion. He is holy and destroying. He's not going to have it any other way. It's going to happen. It's going to be a judgment. He destroys those, verse 6, who speak lies. The Lord abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful men. The next paragraph, verse 7, But I, through the abundance of thy steadfast love, will enter thy house. If, if, if this generic psalm, that's what I would call it, a generic psalm, doesn't give you much specific, kind of, other than it's for the flutes, that seems a little unhelpful. It's a prayer. It recognizes God's holiness, his opinion about wicked things. And then it recognizes something. That's the state of God. Now then there's a state of you, the person praying it. But I, through the abundance of thy steadfast love, will enter thy house. I will worship toward thy holy temple in the fear of thee. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of my enemies. Make thy way straight before me. Your basic expectation of you, that you would seek him and his righteousness in you. That's what, that's what you're expecting. And I like the fact that it said, you know, uh, worship toward thy holy temple. It's almost uh, Islamic. Um, you know how they have little carpets? Probably the, the, um, the Warners can sell you a small prayer rug, um, not making you Islamic, because there's no even temple of the Jews anymore. But praying toward the temple. Remember Daniel... Some of you have been dealing with issues like, what are the, what's a Christian's obligation under this COVID nonsense? I'll get thrown into the lion's den, that's one obligation. But it's for going up to your room and doing what you always did, which was praying toward Jerusalem with your windows open. When, when the temple was dedicated back in Chronicles, Chronicles, dedication of the temple, he, Solomon gives this long prayer and He's basically saying, you know, God, you can't dwell in houses made by man, but I made, you a, I made you a house. And then he says, ask God if 
when heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against thee, if they pray toward this place, like David is saying about the tabernacle, toward thy holy temple. In the basic things of you, do you pray to a God greater than you with the honorifics intact, however you honor him and how short and clear it is? Do you know that it is to be heard by him? And the him who is hearing you is a holy God. He is good. And that your seeking of him speaks the language of seeking him. I want you to think of all the different ways you can speak. I mean, obviously, there is action, symbolic action. A person who um, genuflects in, some, in front of somebody or curtsies. It speaks, it says something. There's an action that says something. Words say something. How do you speak? What is your position regarding who this God is. If I'm asking him for things and he is good and he destroys the wicked and I want to be righteous, how is that expressed in me at all? Is my life toward his holy temple? Now this, as you know, is not anybody's holy temple. This is a church in North Idaho. Um, it's decent, but I don't want you whipping out that Warner purchased prayer rug, snapping it out and pointing it towards All Souls Christian downtown and saying your prayers. There's nothing, you know, sanctified here, really. But God himself in you, how would you see his house, his holy temple? Because you're wanting to have him make his way straight for you in front of you. You want to be following a way that makes you good like he is good. This is pretty simple. This is not, again, this is generic. If Christians got up in the morning and prayed to be heard to a God they had no doubt of his goodness and holiness that was going to judge the world and then devoted themselves to face his house, whatever you mean by house, that you'd be pursuing that God. Just getting that far, but it was just through verse 8. Looking for the way to be made straight before you, God's way made straight before you that you would do in your life what he wants. Not that he would come into your life. Most of us start with a prayer that goes through whatever thing, just, just like the pagans do, but out of covetousness, we try to placate the God so he will do things in my life for my good, my way. My way will turn out. Not his way will turn out. My way will turn out. There's nothing wrong to have your way unless you're an idiot. But we want to know his way that his way would be made straight before you. That the way you walk down the road is that you're confident that his house is at the other end. And the way is straight. I was thinking straight does not mean, uh, well, it means straight. Um, like straight line. 
I was, uh, we were at uh, John and Brenda Carnahan's last night for Ben's birthday, because now we have to celebrate other people's birthdays that our daughter's marrying into their family, so it was a good time. They live out east of town, a ways out Robinson, uh, Park Road, Lake Road, whatever it is. That is the windiest road. I'm surprised that 12 people don't die a year. With no snow at all, we nearly died four times. The, the, the turns are so tight. They I put signs up and stuff, but it's dark and I'm driving fast and it's hard to keep your wheels on the road. The wife was sleeping or trying to. There's a, well, you know what that's like when a road has not considered your interests of how fast you're traveling. If you're on a motorcycle, it's different. You can lean into the curves, but those four-wheel things do not lean. It matters that you have a straight road. A difficult road, as picturesque as it is, is a dangerous road. Do you want it? I mean, do you want that? I mean, is your basic generic prayer <laughs> some cobbling together of honorifics for your God, some declaration of hallowed be his name, and that his kingdom come and will be done is your next paragraph, that you would be constantly seeking to enter his house, praying, worshiping toward his holy temple. He gets on to the, uh, the rest of the people. You know, probably 1000 BC, which is approximately the date of this psalm, this prayer, most of the world, very similar to now, hates God, loves themselves, pursues absolute uh, self-award against the will of God. There is no truth in their mouth, verse 9. Their heart is destruction. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. That, that, that second two lines is quoted in Romans 3. I think it's Romans 3. What is Romans? Yeah, he, he does a bunch of, um, right after he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. They've all turned aside. Together they've all gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. That's this one here. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They use their tongues to deceive. They flatter with their tongue. So the New Testament writers agree with the psalmist. People are bad. We don't have a problem of God's goodness, God's justice. We have a problem with man's view of himself. He does not know that most everybody is wicked. That's something will will really help you out in life. You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna be or shouldn't be very Pollyanna-ish about. Oh, I think it's all gonna work out, and and we'll watch enough Disney films, or we or we see enough Christian movies, or get Christian rock established as a really valid choice. It's not going to happen. Nothing's going to get fixed. The place is going to hell in a handbasket. And it will not be anything else. 
Even the Lord said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Do you realize how rare it is possible Jesus Christ had it as a category that at his return, there wouldn't be anybody who was a Christian. You, go, yeah. you don't have that as a category. He had it as a category. He might not be right. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's an open question. Man wants to serve himself. And the calamities they create. And we're running around trying to sweep up after them like a desperate mother who doesn't realize she raised her kids poorly. Trying to keep it from looking like the house is a wreck, train wreck, because she's going to pick up everything. The Christians are trying to make morality for non-believers. They are, they are naturally immoral. Once you have a view of the gospel... I was talking to one of my sons the other day, forget who, um, about non-believers being in your presence and you find out, hey, he's living with his girlfriend. And so the Christians go, you know, hey, you shouldn't be living with your girlfriend. What are you doing? Why not? He's not a believer. Not because it's okay for non-believers, but that's what he's going to do. What are you trying to fix? Have some sort of decision about morality? Make him kind of like a Christian and so that you can't tell the difference because he, no, you, you have to be converted from your sins. You have to be repentant. You don't fix things this way. You can't fix the calamity of the world. Matter of fact, you know what? The calamity in this world is there for a reason. It's not merely, oh, things are broke. That's how we blame God for it. I didn't just, it's not a flaw, it's a feature. Okay? Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of their many transgressions, cast them out. This, this is what happens when people are wicked. It goes to pieces. And we're running around trying to pick up all the pieces and make it, no, it shouldn't hurt so much. It shouldn't be this bad. It shouldn't be that bad. Realize that the calamity of this world is because of the sin of man. When you talk to someone in the theodicy question, you say it is because you are evil that Nazis exist. Say, but they're not Nazis. I didn't accuse them of being Nazis. Nazis exist because you are evil. And pancreatic cancer exists because you are evil. Not particular pancreatic cancer. People brought sin into the world. They wanted to serve themselves. And, of course, everybody wants the privilege of serving their own sinful urge because they are them. But when you serve your own sinful urge and you think God should let you do that, you have to grant it to the Nazi, too. The Nazi has just as many rights as a soul as you do. If you think you can cheat on your taxes and the Nazi can't murder Jews, who, who are you? God? That you get to do what you want, no matter how bad it is, as long as, but they can't do what they want. You have granted everyone a rational claim to every wickedness ever committed when you sin on your own claim of being in charge of your own life. That's what man has done. And all of the 
mutations and all of the disease and all the calamity and all the wars and everything that comes up that kills small children, that gives people diseases, everything in there is because we decided we wanted to do what we wanted to do, and that means everybody has the right to do what they want to do. It's a philosophy. The sinner has a philosophy that says everybody gets to do what they want. Because as soon as they say, oh, but they can't do that, you say, no, you can't say that because you're the same as they are. Only a God can say they can't do that. God will punish. They will fall by their own counsels. When, when, I don't have to fix things. God's going to judge the earth. What does it say, that passage that Tristan read this morning? Christ didn't need to revile in return. It says he trusted to him who judges justly. Don't worry, you'll be dead, in, most of you, in 50 to 70 years. Be a little sooner, a lot sooner. God takes care of this. Nobody gets out of here alive. And what's going on is just basic religion of the living God 101. You honor him. You have a high view of his holiness. You have a great commitment to your own pursuit of his holiness. And you have a recognition that those that don't is what's the problem with this world. They have rebelled against thee. Then in verse 11 it says, but let all who take refuge in thee rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And do thou defend them, that those who love thy name may exult in thee. Look at the description of generic presence before God. You, you know a God, you know a deity. This is not, again, a, a theological definition of a deity. This is a God. Imagine meeting Apollo or any other deity. Now imagine Yahweh being a bit more of that, a lot more of that. He is divine. He's not a definition. He is a being that made all things. How we pray to him, how we serve him, what we view of him, there's a basic biblical way of feeling. If you take refuge in him, rejoice, singing for joy. We exult in our God. It is a, it is a triumphalism. Our Christ is victorious. We exist in this world where a lot of these things don't, you know, say, play out with some sort of uh, narratival precision where suddenly an explosion of daisies and white light is above your head every time you walk into Winco because he's a Christian. She's a Christian. Everybody recognizes, oh, look, what a wonderful group of people. <laughs> we are living inside that broken world that is so wicked that we'll be judged by God. We are given a, a, a 
need to face up to the, the death that sin brought into the world. We are going to die. And yet, rejoicing, singing for joy, exulting in thee, is your kind of your normal voice? Is it your normal voice to rejoice in God? You've heard me say countless times that I've been in too many arguments where Christians were trying to prove to me that Christians didn't have to rejoice. I go, what kind of human being are you? It's like, no, this religion, it's, you can't make me be happy. We get back to that teenage girl thing going on. He wants you to be happy. If you knew this, you would be happy. If you knew what this was like, if you knew, because the last line here, for thou dost bless the righteous, O Lord, so that we take refuge in and we rejoice, we sing for joy, the, uh, we exult in him, for, that means because of this, thou dost bless the righteous, O Lord, thou dost cover him with favor as with a shield. I know a lot of Christians who don't think God can, you know, that, that we can please God. This seems to suggest that God, you could be in God's favor. One of the reasons he forgives you <laughs> so that you could be in God's favor. And then your righteousness as you have sought his house. Sought his way to be straight before you. That covers you with God's favor. And it's like a shield. Think of it, you remember, you know how you learn those in Bible story class and when you're kids and wherever, Sunday school, and you got the, you got the little thing, the whole full armor of God, and you got to color it in, and, and the teacher was going to tell you what the shield was, this, that, and the other thing. Well, those things are really um, um, valuable, but here's another image that God's favor, you standing in God's favor, is a shield to you. In a world that's broken, in a world that's massively in rebellion, your God that you have sought protects you in the confidence you have in his life. That's the, the summation there at the left bottom of the left-hand side. I'm praying, you are good, I seek you, they do not. This is great, I like this, and God likes me. We, David did a better job of that. You can sense you know, poetry and the like, but how would you say, I am praying? How would you say, my God is good, and not be too pedestrian? Or only as, you know, if you say, but I am pedestrian. Well, do it in a pedestrian fashion, but absolutely sincere, as best as a pedestrian, a mind can construct it because you're dealing with the highest thing. You're dealing with righteousness. But this is, this generic prayer is good for every day. It's like the generic Lord's Prayer, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Because every day we gotta have something. Every day we got to forgive someone. Every day we want to be not led into temptation. This is a tidy, 
uh, meditation on what we walk into or how we should walk into things. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful. Thank you for David. Greet him for us. We'd ask that you would uh, help us in the most pronounced way be established in these generically worshipful right attitudes as we speak to you to be heard by you. We'd ask that you in your goodness would smile upon us. In your son's name, amen.